0: Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. It is a distinct pleasure to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Jason Socken. Jason is currently a doctoral candidate in economics at the University of Pennsylvania. His research focuses on how the internet and technology have fundamentally altered how firms and workers interact in today's labor market. He has worked as a researcher at Penn Wharton Budget Model, Glassdoor, the Congressional Budget Office, the White House's Council of Economic Advisers under the Obama administration, and the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. His research has been covered in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, and most recently, In an op-ed for the Washington Post. Jason, welcome to Brain for Business. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's really exciting to be here. Excited to talk to you about what I've sort of been working on for the past couple of years. Well, we're uh, excited to to hear it. And in terms of that, you know, in a number of recent papers, you and, and some colleagues have explored some of the challenges that people face in finding out information about potential employers. And I guess the first question then is, if information, you know, perhaps we might even call them ratings, is available on sites such as Glassdoor, Indeed, and and so on, surely this brings a welcome degree of transparency that someone considering a job might be able to draw upon.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Let me first start out um, just by saying that I think the labor market of today is not the labor market of yesterday. Right? If we think about how workers used to find out about jobs um, you know, before the 21st century, we're talking about potential newspapers where people read classifieds, maybe employment agencies where workers go to find out what jobs are available, what's, what's newly come available. They might have to rely upon word of mouth from others who work at certain companies or, or from their social network, or maybe even read magazines about these best places to work you know fast forward to today you know if you look at a survey of US households right 70% of unemployment or unemployed Americans right now are using the internet to search for jobs so just the the labor market today for workers is just fundamentally different than what it used to be right if we think about the amount of information that's available to job seekers jobs and companies are really just a click away now, not just job listings and job postings where you can see a job board and 20, 50, thousands of jobs can pop up and you can apply to them, but also this information about companies, as you so call them, ratings. And in, in my work with my co-authors, the way we're gonna de- detail this or describe it is gonna be what we call the inside scoop, right? Essentially, you're gonna get voices from experienced employees who are gonna detail aspects of work that people on the outside who haven't worked with the company might not be privy to otherwise. And when we talk about aspects of work that we might not be privy to otherwise, what I'm thinking about here is the quality of maybe your boss at, at the job, maybe the quality of your coworkers, how friendly they are, how productive they are, how much stress do workers at this company how good is the work-life balance? Do you have to work on weekends? Do you have to work nights? You know, do employees get respect in these jobs? Or is there some level of abuse that's not being documented? And so these ratings are really providing job seekers with this host of new information that just was not existent or available, you know, in the labor market of yesterday.
0: And that makes a lot of sense, because clearly the internet has allowed people to communicate so much easier between themselves and to share information. But what then are some of the biggest challenges that people face?
1: Yeah, and I would characterize these challenges sort of in two ways or two facets. One is gonna be the information problem that workers face that sort of gives rise to the importance of this kind of rating system. A lot of work, especially in personnel economics, the field I sort of study, uh, has been spent studying the manager's problem, right? How does a boss differentiate workers that might appear similar, right, have similar resumes, have similar educational backgrounds, but differ in unobservable ways? You know, how do I discern if this is gonna be a person who's gonna put a lot of effort on the job? It's very motivated uh, to work here. Whereas what the, the issue that I think arises inversely or conversely is that workers might face a similar problem. Is that how does a worker going about differentiating companies, or or firms as as I'll refer to them, that might appear similar but differ in unobservable ways. And so if you think about the problem that a job seeker faces, there's many companies, there's many jobs, there's many locations, and there's not really a representative job or a blueprint that workers can go off of. Even if you take the same company in the same city, a sales associate and a manager might have very different experiences on the job. And so there isn't really a representative blueprint that workers might be able to rely upon, and that's because jobs are complex. There's many aspects that go beyond just a wage. I've alluded to some of them earlier, but if I wanted to sort of break it out into some sort of categories, I think there's issues such as fringe benefits, right, which we think about as health insurance, about retirement accounts, about how much time in terms of paid vacation you get. Then there's issues related to working conditions, how safe of an environment? Is it what's the quality of the office space like? What's mor- morale among other coworkers there? Um, in terms of human capital investments, is, is this company offering on the job training? Do they actually give promotions when they're promised? And then issues such as interpersonal relationships. What's the quality of relationships between managers and their subordinates, between coworkers, between teammates, even between employees and customers? And these are all aspects I think help detail and describe a job that might not be summarized in just the wage that's being posted or being offered. Many of these aspects, if we think about them, are again only these kind of aspects that we can learn once you've experienced the company. I think that's what makes this rating system so valuable is providing this inside scoop that only insiders of the company really have firsthand knowledge of. But I think there's a second issue here which is a challenge associated with the actual rating system itself, is that it might be hard to discern an unbiased signal from these ratings you're getting in pers- because not everyone at the company is going to be providing a review. You're not going to have every single person at the company telling you their experiences. So you have to figure out what kind of signal or what kind of noise there is in this information that's being provided.
0: And what's the cause of, of that difficulty? You know, what's the cause, I guess, of that lack of transparency? Is it not sharing information or an inability to share information or or are there other things going on?
1: I would break it down again into two categories. I think there's challenges associated with the workers information problem of trying to differentiate companies that might seem similar but differ in unobservable ways. And then, of course, a challenge uh, with the rating system and not everyone providing it. So let me start with the former. And I think there's there's two clear issues I'd like to highlight. One, is that there's a sort of incompleteness of contracts, is that you can't condition on every single aspect of the job when trying to write and sign a contract between an employee and employer. If you think about it, how do you go about detailing or or characterizing the level of stress you can feel while on the job? How do you go about promising that you won't have to work a late night on a project that takes longer than it does? That you won't have to, um, that you're guaranteed a certain level of uh, fun or morale at this job, it's just there's some aspects you can't really condition on. You, you could condition on things like the wage and maybe how many days paid time off you get and, and your health insurance and your retirement contribution matching rate, but there are just so many softer aspects about the quality of the job that we just can't condition upon. The second issue I would say in relation to that is there's also imperfect enforcement. Firms might or employers might over-promise but then under-deliver. If you think about the process here firms are trying to get you to join their company so you might go through an interview process and they might tell you about how great it is to work here they might promise you certain things but when you're actually on the job there's actually less of an incentive to provide that level of job quality once they're on the job once you're actually employed at the company there's less of an incentive to follow through on those promises potentially reneging on things that were offered or talked about during the interview process. You know, for example, we've seen some recent reports of companies promising a certain level of wage growth, but then once employees are actually there, not actually getting that, that guaranteed or promised wage growth. And I think that stems from this issue that switching jobs is a very costly process for workers. Once you're on the job, if you think about, let's say that the firm reneges on what they promised you and you decide you're upset and want to leave, well, then you have to go about finding another job. And you might have to move cities. You might have to find a new social network. And so there can be very, very high cost to having to switch. And so this leads to an issue where firms might be able to over-promise, get you on the job, but then
0: under-deliver. It sounds very much like like marketing in, in that regard, that they, you know they're, they're able to market themselves. But the reality, when you get the product, obviously the job can, can, can sometimes be different.
1: Absolutely. And I, think, and I think you see this if you look at the advertisements, the job postings, that companies post, right? they have an incentive to put their best foot forward. You don't see companies saying, we have the worst managers in town, come work for us, right? They, they want you to feel like this is the best place to come to. And so I think that's part of the issue. There's an over-promise but an under-deliver. And that gets into why I think this information problem sort of stems and why it's so important that we have these kind of ratings and inside scoops to help uh, sort of alleviate those issues. But I think getting into the cause of a challenge related to the rating system itself is that one of the big things that my co-authors and I uh, discuss is this issue of retaliation risk. Is that if a worker is speaking out negatively about the firm, presumably they want to you know, tell others and, and, and alert job seekers to issues with the company, they might be putting themselves uh, at a uh, potential cost of retaliation that employers might take action uh, against them. Against them. It, it, it's risky to do this. And so what that means is that in situations where workers might have a higher cost of retaliation, for example, they might still be currently employed with the firm, Or they might be working at a smaller company where it's harder to blend in among a pool of potential candidates. We think about these two types of workers as being in more compromising scenarios where the cost of retaliation is even higher. And there's evidence of this that firms will retaliate against workers for speaking out. You know, they might lower wages, they might reduce workers' hours, they might put more tasks upon them so that the job becomes more, more challenging, they might ostracize Employees for speaking out, and you might even go so so far as to fire the employee or make the conditions so worse that the employee chooses to leave. And if you think about this from the perspective of the of the employee leaving this review, you know, is it worth, you know, potentially losing your job or having these really large retaliatory risks to help people that you might are almost certainly will never actually
0: meet? I can really see what what you're getting at there, but I, I guess what. What I'm curious about is a point that you raise in, in your research, which is that despite that retaliation risk and, and, and all of the other potential challenges, people typically report finding negative reviews more helpful. So, so clearly those negative reviews are, are being uh, made. Why are those reviews, those negative reviews, perhaps more helpful?
1: Yeah, and I I think this points to exactly what you talked about with retaliation risk, sort of being sort of a driver of maybe why this is so helpful, right? Is that it's hard to get this negative information because workers might fear providing it. So one reason might be just that it's scarcer, right? This is sort of more valuable because it's rarer. And so uh, the fact that it is there to be consumed, I think, makes it such that job seekers are increasingly um, appreciative of, of, of finding this information. I would say that there, there's potentially two other um, explanations I think worth highlighting there. Again, th- this, this claim and this really robust finding that we have in our work, it doesn't really matter how you slice and dice this. This is, seems to hold across all measures of negativity that workers really, really want. To learn the negative information about a company. One, as we said, might be scarcity because of retaliation risk. A second might be something I alluded to earlier is that companies themselves aren't providing this negative information. They're putting their best foot forward with these sort of positive advertisements and so you're not getting it directly from the company and so potentially your only source of this negative information is in fact these rating systems. The third potential explanation I would point to, and perhaps the, mo- the, the, the largest contributor, I would say, is that workers tend to be pretty risk averse. Is that we'd much rather avoid a really negative job than a really positive job. And if we think about it, I think it gets into the idea of, again, it being very costly to leave a job. So if we have a really, really poor experience and we want to leave, it's such a costly endeavor. Whereas if we go from an average job to a really great job, Yes, we might be happy about it, but not as worse off as we would be from going to a really negative job. So we'd much rather
0: avoid the really bad jobs than potentially find the really good ones. In that regard, though, is there a difference, do you think, between well-known you know, household name type organizations, companies, firms, and, and some that actually might be less well-known?
1: yeah and i would say that i think this sort of gets into the importance of a reputation system like these online ratings is that for these less well-known firms this rating system this this sort of transparency that's newly provided from inside employees providing information to job seekers might be the only way in which a potential job seeker can learn about these less well-known firms it might be the only signals they're getting For these sort of well-known firms as you as you you characterize them they might be household names you've heard about them you're familiar with them so even if you see these signals from this transparent online rating system you might still have your own off-site understanding or characterization of the company and so well-known firms are very different from less well-known firms in that less well-known firms This online system might be the only signals you're really getting. And what we find in our research, actually, is that for these less well-known firms, these ratings really matter, is that we find a causal effect that more positive ratings lead to more applications from job seekers, that a more positive signal really does influence job seekers to apply to these firms because they want uh, to avoid the bad firms and and try and find these sort of good, high-quality jobs at these high-quality employers.
0: Well, that then begs the question, though, are there ways in which employers might perhaps strategically inflate their their ratings and and take steps to to make things look better than they really are?
1: Yes, absolutely. and and as the as the economist, it's frustrating because you have to try and account for all of these things and, and recognize them and try and study them. But I think there are these sort of um mechanisms by which employers can try to inflate their ratings. Uh, and i think there's three i'll I'll try and highlight the first i sort of briefly alluded to which is this idea of retaliation risk is that if a firm takes a very strong retaliatory stance that can have this chilling effect on other employees this sort of suppressing effect so for example uh, if a worker anonymously reports negative information about the firm the company might try and sue or take legal action uh, potentially against or to try and, and, and figure out who is the person inside the company who sort of left that review and so this idea that there could be very large costs potentially through legal action or just through, as I described before, retaliation for workers on on the job, is that this can lead to a chilling effect where you effectively silence other workers from coming forward with negative information. And thus, this negative information doesn't get out, only the positive information does. So I think that's one way firms can strategically try and inflate the ratings, by taking this strong retaliatory stance. I think a second one is kind of the inverse of that, where employers might Uh, engage in what we characterize in in our work as sock puppetry. And not to play on my last name at all, but this idea that campaigns by the employers might be done in order to help promote employees uh, to leave reviews. They might try and offer financial incentives or perks to get employees to go uh, on this rating system and, and leave a, a positive review. And so we, you know, this kind of feels like something like you might have after you take an Uber ride or a Lyft and the driver at the end says, oh, can you leave me a five-star review? It's just here with employers, employees might feel obligated if their employer uh, is asking them to do so. And especially if there's a financial incentive uh, to do so. So this would be what we refer to as sock puppetry. The third um, way in which I think firms might strategically inflate their ratings is is kind of related to this idea uh, of suppressing negative information but through actual contracting that the firm engages in with the employees. And This is to make employees sign uh, non-disclosure agreements or NDAs as I'll refer to them or, or by having them sign non-disparagement agreements in the sense that firms are are forcing workers to sign these contracts in which they might agree not to speak out negatively about the company, to not provide this sort of public information about the operations of the firm, especially if they're in a a, a damaging light or a disparaging light.
0: How then do those NDAs, specifically I guess in terms of non-disclosure but also possibly non-disparagement, how do they affect the information flows does it have to to use your words that chilling effect on information from uh, employers
1: so effectively they it's it works similar to retaliation risks ndas can effectively suppress workers from speaking out about the firm in particular in, in a negative light and that's not to say that ndas only do this i think ndas serve this important function uh, of protecting trade secrets if you're a company who has a proprietary algorithm right or a proprietary client list or proprietary projects that it's important to the operations of the business so you don't want an employee leaving your firm bringing that to their next company saying hey I have all this insider information let's let's use it so there is a really important function that NDAs can offer in terms of protecting trade secrets but what we've seen quite often in very in quite recent years is that these NDAs have become overly broad and can pretty much cover practically any aspect of work. In our paper where we try and study non-disclosure agreements, we actually bring to light an instance where one NDA that talks about that it covers any information that pertains to the personal, social, or business activities of practically any employee at the firm. And you can imagine how this goes well beyond just trade secrets. This is now covering a much broader set of issues and can effectively cover potentially damaging or disparaging information about the operations of the company. And so even if workers were then to decide, no, I think it's important to speak out and they choose to, firms may then take legal action again, creating this chilling effect where, you know, is it worth a worker potentially violating this kind of agreement and and thus having to face these costs to help workers who they may never actually meet in real life?
0: And does that prevent better employers from from standing out if, if they're kind of trying to, to restrain or uh, restrain sorry that uh, information flow.
1: Yeah, and, and this is one of the, the big
0: issues I think we highlight
1: in the paper is that it's long been talked about and theoretically that this idea that having two parties engage in a contract might have what we call externalities, these, these effects on others who are not privy or a part of that contracting process. So when this employee and employer decide to sign a, a non-disclosure uh, agreement, perhaps as a uh, condition of starting at the company, this could have ramifications for others who are not this firm and, and not this employee. And, and, and one of the you know potential groups here that might be affected by this contracting is exactly other employers, in particular better employers who might struggle to stand out. And the reason they might struggle to stand out is exactly because if you think about this rating system, what non-disclosure agreements can effectively do uh, is, is lead to a situation where a company could have a high quality signal that this is a great company to work for for two reasons. One is that they're actually a really good company, and so the the workers there are more satisfied, they leave more positive ratings, and so on average, there's gonna be a good signal coming from this company that this is a great place to work. However, you could also get a really positive signal from a company where all of the negative information was just concealed or hidden or suppressed through either retaliation risk or through these non-disclosures where effectively any negative stuff doesn't get out and so only the positive ratings do, in which case the signal that's being sent for this employer is again a good quality signal. So in this case, a job seeker can't discern the difference. They go to this rating system where they want to find those best employees, they see two companies that have a very, both have very positive signals. One might be because it's actually a good company, the other might be just because it uses a lot of uh, contracting and non-disparagement or non-disclosure agreements to stop negative information from getting out. And so these good in companies, these high road employers who do have really potentially great benefits or strong development opportunities
0: struggle to differentiate themselves. And, And out of curiosity, something that I guess comes to mind is, is there some kind of information asymmetry here? In other words, do employers find it easier to gather information about potential employees because they're not restrained by any legal agreement compared to employees or potential employees finding out about employers?
1: It's an interesting question. I, I, you know, I, if I think of that, I think there's two asymmetries that are probably worth mentioning here. One is going to be an asymmetry in just the signaling that's going on, right? In terms of this matching process, workers are trying to find jobs, you know, employers are trying to find employees, and so there's this asymmetry in the signaling process that workers are trying to send as many signals as they can to employers to tell them that they're really going to be a good employee. If you think about it, we get we go to school, we get degrees, we, we have job experience, and so on our resumes, we highlight all the tasks. And, and all of our responsibilities we had. We talk about our skill sets. Are we proficient in, in, in these aspects of work? We, we draft cover letters. We, we get references that tell people, that will you know vouch for us that we are in fact good employees. So there's lots of ways in which we as workers are trying to signal that we'll be a really great employee and you should hire us. But if you think about the flip side of this arrangement, employers aren't doing as much signaling they write these job descriptions to advertise a posting they might have an interview process but again during this they're putting their best foot forward but you know we don't really have the inside scoop we don't get the experiences or the knowledge that's associated with these hard to measure hard to understand aspects that only insider voices have and so there we sort of have this asymmetry in how much information is really available without seeing the inside scoop from these experienced employees The second set of asymmetry I would would highlight is just the amount of publicly available information, is that employers, if you're a well-known firm, there might be news coverage, right? You think about a Tesla or an Apple or a Microsoft, these firms are constantly being talked about in the news, so they're more household names, so you can have that news coverage, but until now, you you maybe didn't have information about the company, especially for these less well-known firms, until you have this sort of rating system that sort of providing information about a broader set of companies and and so there is more available information to employees because and job seekers because these rating systems now exist whereas on the flip side of that asymmetry you have workers that have public social media profiles potentially and so that is all you know open for job you know people that are trying to hire job seekers or or the, the firm to look at and say what is this person posted on twitter what are they posted on facebook what do they post it on linkedin this is all about publicly available information where the job seeker might have a lot of information available whereas the employer might not until these sort of rating systems are sort of filling that gap
0: okay and so then thinking from the employee's perspective why do, do you think signals of, of job quality you know might be be valuable to workers what is it that is so valuable about them
1: I think this is one of the big things we're seeing today, in fact. You know, we hear a lot about this sort of great resignation. And I think a part of this at least stems from workers wanting more out of their jobs than just wages. They want job quality. And that's because jobs are these complex systems that are more than just wages, right? They, they We've seen a lot of evidence, and I, and I showed this in recent work, that workers really value attributes of jobs that go beyond just wages. We see that workers that are more satisfied in their jobs, right, satisfied with the non-wage aspects, if you will, spend more time employed with their employers. So they're willing to spend more of their years as a worker at a company when they feel more satisfied with the job. And part of this, I think, stems from the fact, and when we talked about it being costly to leave a job because you have to find another job, you might have to move to a new location, but it's also risky. To leave your current job for the unknown of another employer. You know one of my co-authors has this quote uh, he likes to use very often which is that the devil you know is better than the devil you don't is that you have all these aspects of work you know what the working conditions are you know what the work-life balance is at your current job it's risky to go to another employer or another company or another job if you don't know what the other side is going to look like you don't know what these non-wage aspects might look like, which we know that workers value and that they'll spend more years at the company if they're more satisfied with these non-wage aspects. And the last thing, and I'll say about this and then I'll conclude on this question, is that if you think about ways in which companies can make it better situation for workers, they can offer you a higher wage or they can offer you better attributes of work. And if a company gives you a dollar more in wage and another company offers you a dollar more in wage, that dollar is going to be the same regardless of which two you go to. But if you have the attributes that are more positive at your current company, again, it's a risky decision to leave those really nice attributes you currently have for a job where you you have this unknown. And so companies might strategically want to offer you better attributes so that you stay longer. And because they know, again, it's this risky decision to leave and and, and sort of enter into a potential search process where you don't know what these non-wage aspects are going to look like.
0: Okay, that, that makes sense. As a final word, is there a policy recommendation you might make that, that could actually help address some of these uh, challenges and, and possibly even improve the flow of information about employers?
1: There is, and, and I think this is sort of what makes me optimistic uh, about doing research in, in the first place is the idea that uh, under, uncovering Uh, These sort of new findings can can lead to important implications for workers and and families and for job seekers. And I think that out of our research uh, comes this very clear policy recommendation is that um, I think it's time to eliminate or ban non-disparagement agreements. Uh, And that's not to say we should ban NDAs or non-disclosure agreements. Again, they have those valuable uh, aspects of protecting trade secrets, but these non-disparagement agreements are explicit clauses where a worker states that they will they sign a contract says they will not say anything disparaging or negative about the company and it's really hard to economically justify these non-disparagement agreements if you think about it, there's just a number of reasons why for a number of different agents involved in the labor market where these non-disparagement agreements are effectively hurting or making them worse off For example, we've talked about for job seekers, right, that these non-disparagement agreements can lead to negative information not getting out from being suppressed. And so that can lead to bias or inflated signals, and thus job seekers might join a company they think is a high road good employer when it turns out not to be. So job seekers might be affected negatively by joining jobs that they wouldn't normally have joined if, if all the information had gotten out. Then you have, as you brought up so astutely, that high road employers struggle to stand out. Once there is this sort of pooling effect where a company could have a strong or positive rating because they're actually good or because they've suppressed all the bad stuff from getting out, that prevents these good employers from standing out. So they're also negatively affected. You're hurting the companies that are potentially doing the right thing. Third is that you're also restricting workers from having their voices heard. And this is a decision that workers are making you know, right when they get to the job, not when they've already experienced what's going on at work. So you're making this, workers make this decision first when they sign on, but they might change their mind later in their job. Once they actually experience what's going on, then they might decide they want to speak out and make sure others are aware of this. So workers might feel restricted and worse off because they can't voice themselves. And then fourth and finally is that by allowing companies to use non-disparagement agreements, you're effectively disincentivizing them from improving upon the issues that are systemically causing those negative responses from their employees, right? They know that they can conceal this bad activity rather than trying to improve upon it. And a recent paper in the Journal of Accounting Research actually shows that there is this disciplinary effect when workers are allowed to speak out, that when workers discuss or or post about negative aspects of the job, That companies will in fact take it upon themselves to improve and respond to that so there is this disciplinary effect where employers feel this incentive to improve and non-disparagement agreements are removing that effectively stating you can conceal all this bad activity rather than systemically improving upon and so i think for a host of these reasons that i think it's time to eliminate
0: non-disparagement agreements No, it makes sense if people are interested in finding out more about your research where can they go
1: yeah, please uh, visit my personal website. All, all of my, my working papers uh, are available there. And also feel free uh, to reach out to me via email. I, I'm happy to have a conversation and, and talk about the, these really important issues facing job seekers in the labor market today.
0: Great stuff. And I'll make sure to, uh, to put a link to your website in the, in the show notes. Jason Socken of the University of Pennsylvania, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. It was great being here. Now, theme song, La La Song, Electronic Beat Time and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.